In the world of Maniac McGee, butterscotch crimpets come in packs of three, so it's all too fitting that our episode on Maniac McGee would likewise be a tasty three-pack of sweet iced goodness. He's risen to greatness, been taken down for daring to be exceptional, found a new happy home, and lost it all over again. Will this extraordinary child make it in a cold, cruel world? Let's find out together in Maniac McGee Part 3 on Reliterated, the podcast that puts the fine in overdue book fines. Welcome to Reliterated, the Lowbrow Book Club, where three uh, completely unqualified manchildren read or reread the books we had to read in school, read for fun, or were otherwise popular during our childhood in the 90s, and reflect on the lessons we took away from them back then and compare them to how they read now from our current day perspective. As our bodies deteriorate and our metabolisms slow way the fuck down because we're grown ass men. We use language too mature for kids, analysis too immature for literary scholars, and ignorance too profound to be inoffensive to everyone. I'm Andy, and I have a question for my co-hosts. First, to start off with Harold. Harold, Blues Traveler, Runaround, or Sister Hazel, All For You? Which is the better song? Oh, well, that's tough. I'm Harold, and... I'm going to go with Sister Hazel all for you on this one. Runaround is definitely going to be a lot of people's choice on that, but I think that Sister Hazel with All For You, that's a song that you can get a lot of people in a group when it starts getting towards the end and it's all for you and over and over and people will (laughs) sing it. So you're going with Sister Hazel on this one? Uh, Sister Hazel. I've been a Sister Hazel fan for years. All right, let's pose the question to the third crimpet in the pack. Josh, same question, runaround well, or all for you? I prefer runaround. Uh, I actually like a couple songs by Blues Traveler, and that's why I feel runaround is a stronger song, because there's also Hook, which is my favorite Blues Traveler song. So uh, I'd have to go with Blues Traveler on this one. So finally you figured out, but it, but it took a long, long time, huh? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> For me, it's hard to say what Josh sees in Blues Traveler. Sister Hazel does have more songs than All For You, though. They have another song called Champagne High that never really got a lot of play on the radio, but it's a great song. And others that I did not prepare for. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're all just flying by the seat of our pants and not preparing for anything. We're just kind of kind of going with it. And speaking of just kind of going with it, uh, we have an announcement to make about our podcast. Our first three episodes were two weeks apart, and in the course of uh, doing the, this uh, this series, <laughs> as it turned out, on Maniac McGee, we decided that recording a few episodes, you know, one on top of of the other, and having having kind of a uh, a cluster of of them ready to go. Uh, puts us in a pretty good spot where we can start to release these episodes on a weekly basis rather than make y'all wait a couple of weeks <laughs> for for the next one. So Reliterated is transitioning to a weekly podcast instead of bi-weekly, which I'm excited about. I'm excited about this too. I think it'll be easier for people to get the podcast. And especially when we're doing something like Maniac McGee where there's three parts, no one's going to want to wait two weeks to get to the next part of it so so it was either we release three parts one right after the other in the same week 
And then that's a, that's a lot of podcast for you to digest over a short period of time. Or we get it out to you at a weekly basis. And uh, since you're going to be chomping at the bit to get to episode two or part two and part three, uh, it, it's going to be coming to you a little sooner. That's right. And our next bit of business, uh, as we talked about at the end of uh, part two, uh, we are having a little a little contest, a little giveaway. Some yummy butterscotch crimpets. Mm-mm-mm. Yep, we tried them uh, on our uh, our first impressions video because uh, we neither none of us were had ever had them before and wondered what they were all about when we were reading Maniac McGee. So we ordered some. We uh, recorded our thoughts on them and what they tasted like and everything. And we put that on our YouTube channel and on our Reddit, our subreddit rather. And uh, because we had to order away for them, we wound up with a little bit extra. So we decided that we're going to give away our extra boxes of crimpets to two lucky listeners who all you have to do is send in a message either to our Gmail account, reliterated at gmail.com. Or really interact with any of our socials because we really want to hear from our listeners. And just use the word crimpets and we will throw your name into a hat, have a drawing, and two winners will receive a whole box of Maniac McGee's favorite snack cake. And if you don't know how to spell crimpet, it is spelled K-R-I-M-P-E-T, crimpet. Yeah, that's a good, uh, good thing to add. Some people might think it's a C. And let me say, as we saw in the reaction video, at first I had said, well, I said in that video that if I didn't have any other snacks around, these these would be up there. But then I polished off the whole box of crimpets <laughs> almost that night and then a few the next day and realized that I actually really like butterscotch crimpets. And now when I'm reading him about Maniac McGee, like just demolishing these things, I'm thinking <laughs> it I makes sense. get it now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I really, I thought that your, your child's description was probably more apt than, than anyone else's. Oh yeah. Uh, my youngest said, this is delicious. <laughs> Adorable. Just so adorable. So, So, yeah, if you want to taste the delicious, then uh, shout out uh, some crimpet and uh, you might be getting a whole box of your own for free. And with that, by following our Twitter or joining our subreddit or uh, even our Instagram, which Hasn't gotten as much play, but the uh, again, if we get some followers on there, I'd be more than happy to start posting more photos. Um, mm-hmm. You can keep up on what's coming up and some extra stuff that we have. Uh, we will put out some trivia here and there. We've put out a video on the subreddit from the Goosebumps episode with Jeff Goldblum, as we promised. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's. It's a good way to keep in contact with us, find out what's going on and what's coming down the pipeline. Absolutely. Well, I think we've uh, we've kept our our listeners waiting long enough. How about we get right to part three of Maniac McGee? And what a part it is. Part three of Maniac McGee begins in January of that year, just after Grayson passed away at the end of the last episode. Yeah, he died December 30th. It was five days after Christmas. Yes. And that was a rough one. It was tough for Maniac. 
And as just the reader, it was a tough read when you see that last line five days later the old man was dead i broke down i i started bawling that line broke me <laughs> i was yeah. like i'm like this is for kids oh <laughs> yeah, you had Ooh, you had a rough. deep association between grayson and your own grandfather right yeah yeah because it, it was you know very similar and luckily luckily i still have both my grandfathers but uh, it, it did, um, now that you mentioned it, it does remind me when my great grandfather passed. Cause you yeah, had that same was, kind of relationship with great grandpa too. Yeah. Yeah. We were very, very close. So, you know, I remember going over, Oh, come here. Here's my boy. And, you know, mm-hmm. going to see him. He had a fake leg. So it was always, <laughs> always interesting knowing about that. But yeah. So yeah, maybe, maybe that's part of it was why I, I, bro- I broke so bad is because of that. Right. Then again, I I do get very attached to characters and stories as well. So absolutely, and imagine like if that's all that you have in the world, that is your your home, your family. Yeah, and you suddenly lose it. That's where Maniac is at right now. He can't even go back to the uh, the storage room in the band shell, so he's out just running around and sleeping wherever. Well, and he mentions that even if the superintendent had allowed it, he wouldn't have been able to stay there. Maniac at this point, as it describes, is drifting from hour to hour and day to day alone with his memories. He's he's eating just enough to keep himself alive and only warming himself up enough to keep from freezing. It's it's pretty tough. And at this point, he's actually having gone back to the band shell where he was staying. All he did was took a blanket, some food. Uh, the glove, of course, as many books as he could fit into the satchel that Grayson used to take his stuff around on the minor leagues. And of course, he got rid of the he got rid of the the number on the door. He because it was no longer a home. Yeah, he painted over the address because it was no longer his address. He would have times during the day where he would just be jogging along, but then he would burst into twenty second sprints and just kind of be furious. And for good reason. I mean, we've got a kid that's lost his parents, went to live with an aunt and uncle that hated each other, ran away from there, uh, found some people in the East End that took him in. He loved that family. He had to leave because he felt he was a danger to them. He meets this old man and finally has this father figure that is a friend and, and he grew with him and learned from him and enjoyed the company. And I mean, as it's it taught him how to read the, too. Taught, like, and he taught he, this man how to read. Yes. And this man taught him how to properly play baseball, which is obviously maniac as an athlete. He enjoys that stuff. You know, right. for Christmas breakfast, they had love like that was something that <laughs> filled him on Christmas breakfast is what that means to me. And uh, and he's lost it again, again. He's lost it. So he's running all around the the, the surrounding communities uh, in the Philadelphia area. Basically, the only uh, the only place he wouldn't run was the uh, the bridge over the Skulkle River where his parents died. Yeah, I was gonna say he he's his memories are coming back, and that's a memory that is they didn't bring up much earlier in the in the story, but they are. They bring it up now more so. Well, suddenly it's relevant. I mean, he probably remembers his parents to some extent, but more than that, he probably remembers the story of what happened to his parents. 
so that's his association more than anything is what happened to his parents, not what his parents were like. Because three years old, you might remember some things, but you're not going to have long, solid memories about everything. True. Yeah, and that trolley trestle is the representation of the the first and one of the greatest uh, instances of, of separation and homebreaking, I guess would be the term for it, uh, that he experienced. He did go back to the buffalo pen a few times. Uh, He could cover himself with some straw as well as his blanket, but he would also sleep in an abandoned car or empty garages or a basement stairwell. He visited the Salvation Army a few times for some food, and he would do odd jobs for housewives and run errands for shopkeepers because he didn't want to beg. He ended up at the Valley Forge Memorial at some point, and I guess there's these little cabins there, and they're small and they're reminiscent of the cabins that uh, Union soldiers stayed in during the Civil uh, War. Shelter replicas. Yep. And he would stay in them. They didn't have a door on them, but he was sleeping in them. He'd cover himself up. But, I mean, we're talking, this is January cold. And he's sleeping outside with barely a shelter around him. I can't even imagine what that would be like. I don't like it when it gets down to 60 degrees in my house during the winter. There's a there's a paragraph here that describes kind of the, uh, the mindset that he's in. Uh, and it reads... Dreams pursued memories, courted and danced and coupled with them, and they became one. And the gaunt, beseeching phantoms that called to him had the rag-wrapped feet of Washington's regulars. That would be George Washington, and uh, like the Valley Forge is the is the site of uh, the, Ooh, the Revolutionary Army's. War. Okay, yeah, yeah. The Revolutionary War. Yeah, uh-huh. that cold winter that Washington and the troops spent there. I take it back. I had my history wrong. Were you thinking like a Civil War type of? Yeah, I mean, I just off the cuff right now when I was talking, I was thinking Civil War for some reason, but I know that George Washington was in the Revolutionary War, so clearly it was just a <laughs> misspeak this time on my part. <laughs> it's cool. I got to stop taking shrooms right before we do this. <laughs> I didn't. We got- I didn't. <laughs> Yeah, I think this would be way more off the wall if that happened. <laughs> <laughs> and there's spiders on my ceiling. <laughs> but uh, continuing that that paragraph, um, he's seeing like the he's kind of he's not re- actually seeing the ghosts of Washington and his army, or whatever. But he, it's coming uh, convoluted with the the faces of his mother and father and Aunt Dot and Uncle Dan and the Beals and Earl Earl Grayson. In that bedeviled army, there would be no more recruits. No one else would orphan him. So he's decided that he's been uh, the victim of a whole line of people who, I guess in his, from his viewpoint, they left him, even if it was outside of their control, even though he was the one that left the Beals. But it kind of kind of says that they all orphaned him. And you know, he is dead set on... Never letting that happen again. He's in a moment of self-pity here. Oh, he's in a moment of deep depression. It's deep depression, yes, but it's specifically it's self-pity at this point right now. And, And it's similar to Amanda blaming him for what she said earlier. Now, he's left his Aunt Dot and Uncle Dan. He left the Beals. Earl Grayson is the only one that left him in a way. 
okay, but he's right. saying no one else I guess is going parents. to orphan him. And his parents, yeah, they they left him in a way too, yeah. So it's not necessarily that he's blaming them, but he's definitely saying no one else will orphan me now. If he can't get attached to anybody, then no matter what, he's not going to be orphaned in the future. Right. He just is going to be alone. And I don't even think it's he's thinking of a future because right after that, he he sat through a whole evening. He never moved. And uh, knowing it would not be fast or easy and wanting, deserving nothing less, grimly, patiently, he waited for death. He's suicidal at this point, and he's not going to do it in such a way that is like, oh, jump off the bridge or do something. He's just going to let himself slowly freeze to death, which is what, you know, I mean, that's yeah. excruciating. He's losing the losing the will to, to live. Right. Yeah. On the second night in the cabin, though, he heard some some voices, some little voices. And they were definitely not soldiers' voices. It was two kids that appeared to be arguing about which cabin they were going to go into. They're tired and they want to stop. They're calling each other meatball and beef jerky. <laughs> yeah, I love I love their uh, their way with words. Keep calling each other stupid meatball and beef jerky. Basically, using meat as an insult. <laughs> but there's this couple of young kids. Uh, who are also looking for a warm place to stay for the night, and they uh, they stumble upon Maniac in his in his little shelter. Well, I don't think they actually found him. They they were in another cabin and they fell asleep. They because it says they were there was silence after that silence. Hold on, I'm coming, and that was all. And the ghostly soldiers returned, their haunted eyes seeking warmth, food, and life. So in the the next day, uh, oh yeah, it wasn't it wasn't right away, but yeah, yeah. I think it's basically saying there there when it says here there was no morning, only daylight. I think it was maniac for once slept past the sunrise, mm. and he uh, he gets up and he goes outside. And now there's a good one here. Uh, January slipped an icy finger under his collar and down his back. He pulled the blanket tighter about himself, but it was too late. The finger had touched the last warm coal in his hearth, and his body, fanning the ember, shook itself violently. Uh, just folksy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> right. But he, he goes over, and he's looking okay. at the cabin. So he's the one that discovers them in the, yes. in the next yep, cabin. He discovered they don't walk them. in on him. Right. No. Correct. So he he walks over to the other cabin and he sees uh, he notices two little boys and uh, they even they say there get a load of this meatball so they're talking like what is wrong <laughs> why didn't you he's walking around with his blanket on why didn't he bring his mattress with him too which is silly so they're uh, they're obviously little kids one of them's missing a tooth uh, and he calls them uh, missing tooth and screecher. I love how that is, uh, it's in like the narration, yeah. calling, naming them by their, by their characteristics until, uh, Maniac has names to go with them. Right. They refer to, yep. to him as Missing Tooth and Screecher. And, and it switches like a drop of the hat. As soon as yeah. he finds out their names, that that's what they, <laughs> they go by. Yeah. Yep. Right after one calls the other by, by his name, then Missing Tooth is replaced with Pi uh no Russell and then Screecher is Piper. Which isn't much different than Pipe Screecher, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
<laughs> so uh, basically when he finds these kids, they start wrestling and then they start talking to him finally. And they, they tell him that they're running away. They're going to Mexico. And he's kind of laughing to himself about this. And he's like, man, it's, you know, pretty far down there, but it's warm. And they had gone and stolen a bunch of uh, candy and pies, and they actually had stolen some butterscotch crimpets from the store. Yeah, and crimpets. They stole it. Yeah, we stole it, they say. <laughs> Screecher said, we stole it. <laughs> and then he gets called a, st- a stupid sausage. A stupid what sausage. What is with these let kids let them calling meet. each other meat names? <laughs> Shut up, Piper, yeah, meat stupid names. sausage. <laughs> Lots of meat names. <laughs> but maniac uh estimates that they're about eight years old or it couldn't be more than than eight years old no more than four feet tall each of them so they're just kind of bickering amongst themselves they argue about whether maniac is a cop or not they even uh fun. frisk him they give yeah, him they frisk. frisk him for a gun yep <laughs> you know and as long as they don't get in his pockets it's totally constitutional frisk terry stop <laughs> you know he has to tell them if he's a cop is that true yeah no, that's not true. Absolutely not You don't not have true. to identify yourself mm-hmm. as a cop if someone nope. asks you. I'm pretty sure uh, undercover every police undercover officers. officer would be yeah. busted in that case. <laughs> yeah. So no. we're here to tell you right here, no. right now on the Reliterated Podcast, they don't have to tell you they're a cop if you ask if they're a cop. In fact, there are some very strange rules to, I mean, even if they're interrogating you, they can lie to you. They can tell you they found what they're looking for and try and get you to give it up. Uh, So, no, there is no rules against that kind of stuff. (laughs) Yeah, but that's entrapment. (laughs) No, they can't coerce you into it. And uh, entrapment is something entirely different. (laughs) Hey, rule number one, get a lawyer. (laughs) The best thing you can do if you're ever in trouble with the police, and I'm not advocating that you do something to get in trouble with the police, but the best thing you can do is you could recognize something they actually tell you. You have the right to remain silent, and you should exercise that right until a lawyer comes there and speaks with you first. Anyhow, moving on. (laughs) Gather around, children. We're going to teach you how to be a criminal. Effectively. Yeah. No, I'm not trying to say how to be a criminal, but, you know, you can... uh, get yourself in trouble you can incriminate yourself because you get fumbled up you're nervous you say something wrong they take it anything you say can and will be used against you and so you don't want to incriminate yourself because you're you fumble your words so (laughs) anyways maniac's totally not a cop yeah he's not a cop he gets them to go to Cobble's Corner, and he uh, what he tells them is he's from Cobble's Corner Pizza, and every <laughs> week they find somebody that wins a pizza, and this week he found them, and he, they have 24 hours to come claim their prize. So he convinces them to come back to get pizza, but it's a five or six mile walk from two mills. So, I mean, these two kids got quite a ways away from their house. Eight-year-olds in 19... 19- 80-something were built different, I think. <laughs> they must have been. Or is this the 70s? We're still trying to figure out what the time period is. <laughs> I, I'm thinking it's if it's 70s, it's really late 70s. If it's, if it's 80s, it's early 80s. I mean, Grayson, I think that Grayson lived a hard life. 
they, you know, they don't talk about it, but I mean, he was yeah. a baseball player. He traveled to Mexico. He did all these things where he was traveling around. I assume he probably had his own vices as he was going through life. So, I mean, you know, based on the fact, the medical technology of the time and the way a man like him would have lived without going to doctors, no doubt, it, you know, right. he easily could have died in his early 60s, late 50s. Uh, yeah, and, and then when you're when you're struggling, living then. so long, just uh, when you're living so long, just hanging by a thread, you're, you're like working at a park and uh, chalking lines and uh, doing janitorial work at a at a little little park zoo. Right. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Li- living at the Y that that puts some years on you pretty quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Mm hmm. I find it uh, pretty interesting that Maniac goes from, you know, he's given up the will to live and, you know, he, he just, the last coal in the hearth went out and he starts shivering, probably about to freeze to death. But then he comes across a couple of eight-year-olds running away from home and his immediate uh, response is to take care of them by tricking them back to town or to home. He takes them in in a, in a way. As we'll uh, as we'll discover. Yeah, instead of him being orphaned by somebody here, though, it gives him an opportunity to be the one in the charge of taking care. So he's actually the role is kind of reversed for him in this scenario. And he does this by kind of kind of going along with them, saying, "You know, you're taking the long way to Mexico. If you come back to two mills with me, I'll show you a shortcut." So he's <laughs> using all these tricks to make them believe that he's on their side and. Uh, and running away from home, but uh, he takes them back to town, gets them fed, takes them home. Oh, uh, he doesn't take and, them uh, right home. Not right home. No, I, he takes them to the pizza place first. To the pizza place first, yeah. Yep. And he confines himself to three glasses of water and half a dozen crimpets, which I concur, man. Half a dozen crimpets, that's easily a uh, 10-minute <laughs> ordeal. You know, what he should have had with those crimpets is chocolate milk. Yeah, how was that? You said you tried them with chocolate milk. Yeah, it's it's pretty good with chocolate milk. Okay. I mean, we are the chocolate milk friends. Did you yeah, dip them? absolutely. I wish I would have thought of that. I did not dip them. I have some left. I should. Oh, that's what I meant. I thought you dipped them in the chocolate milk. <laughs> no. Oh, man. <laughs> well, Clearly, that is the better way to do it. Again, I'm lactose intolerant. <laughs> so get some chocolate silk. Ooh, yep. I should get some chocolate Ooh, silk. It's so you're the chocolate though, silk so friend. Oh, that dark so chocolate good. almond milk, that's what you need. I know. It's really good. <laughs> <laughs> but they're at Cobble's Corner eating eating pizza, and uh, Maniac's got some crimpets. And the boys agreed uh, to go back home, for at least for the night, before setting out for Mexico in the morning. So they're on their way home when Maniac hears a familiar voice coming towards them. He turns and he sees Big John McNabb coming right right towards him. And he is angry. And he he's barreling towards them and Maniac thought he might run off. Oh yeah, this is also where we discover that these kids are John McNabb's little brothers. Yeah. Like Maniac originally thinks that John is coming for him, but he, he gets to him and screams, where you been? And the kids respond, we was in no place, John. We was right here with this kid. And yep. that, that's when John recognizes him as the as the kid who hit his frog ball yep. way back when. And he says, so what are you doing with my little brothers? Which I thought was a really good moment. Yeah, it is kind of cool. <laughs> And he convinces John that he was not kidnapping his brothers. In fact, he's trying to return them back to the house at this point right now. 
And I guess these kids run away from home about every other week. (laughs) And they find out at this moment, the kids find out that the pizza person was actually Maniac McGee, which now they're really interested in him because he's the guy who hit all of his all their brother's balls out of the park, including the frog ball, which he bunted. And John is getting upset because these kids are rolling around on the sidewalk laughing about the fact that uh, this is the guy that beat their brother. But Maniacs kind of learned a learned a thing or two about shaming bigger kids and uh, how people react to uh, uh, to his his physical feats, like when he kind of embarrasses them. So he's kind of he starts helping John save face a little bit with his uh, with his younger brothers. Tells him that uh, that John was uh, that he was hitting a, a lot of fastballs because that was all he threw at him that day, but it was because he was saving a special pitch for the next day that he had been working on, winking at John the whole time, which was written pretty fun. Yeah, because John's not getting it. He yeah he uh yeah uh huh. Yeah, sure, because he doesn't know what Maniac's even talking about at this point. First off, it didn't happen. Second, he has no idea what the special pitch is because, as we know about John McNabb, he only throws a fastball. But Maniac tells the kids that uh, the pitch that John was throwing at him, that he couldn't even hit a foul ball on it, was the stop ball, which he got that story from from Grayson. The stop ball? The kids say. Now, do you think that Maniac actually was going to teach McNabb how to do the stop ball, or was it just the story to help him save face? I think it was just a story. There's a whole thing here about legends and stories and impressing people with uh, with tales of grandeur. It would have been interesting to see him try to prove it. <laughs> I don't know that Maniac would want to give something like the stop ball to, Mc- to a person like McNabb. I mean... At this point, he's trying to, you know, cool the situation, but I would imagine he's hoping it's going to blow her over because the stop ball is something he learned from Grayson. And I don't even know if it says that Grayson taught him the stop ball. He just. Yeah, I remember him pitching it to him. him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So uh, after this, he's invited to go back to their home. And who, boy, is the McNabb home? (laughs) Oh, (laughs) just a pit. It's something, I'll tell you. And I think it's funny in this book because when we look at all any of the – this is where we get to a difficult subject, but any of the white people in this book have been suggesting so far that, oh, EastEnders, where the black people live, they live like terrible. They're like – it's all bad over there, yada, yada, right? But then we get Mm -hmm. to McNabb's house, which is a white family, family – stated lightly um (laughs) and this house is just a disaster and the the people living in it are each in of in and of themselves disasters uh the these kids are running away every couple of weeks McNabb, we know that he's a total dick and he leads a gang of of kids and he you know, is tries to lead through fear and he, he He's a bully. He I believe bully. he would beat someone up if he caught up to him. If they had caught Maniac McGee when they were chasing him, they would have beat him up. Um but we get in here and uh Maniac sees this 
this little mongrel running through some dog and it's peeing on the floor. And immediately John says to Russell, clean that up. And Russell says to Piper, clean that up. And Piper just walks on by where Maniac sees it. And he's like, okay, I'll just grab this newspaper and put it on here because we know that Maniac is the type of kid that does the dishes without being asked. Mm -hmm. And he finds this newspaper in a stack in a corner. So there's, so far, we've got animal uh, animal piss and stacks of newspapers, and they leave the front door yep. wide open, even in, in January. Yep. And, and it smells like this isn't the first time a, an animal has relieved itself on the floor. It's probably why the door was open, to be honest with right. you. Right. Absolutely. Why it probably, yeah. Uh, there's cans and bottles laying all over the place. There's peels. Cores, scraps, rinds, wrappers, and everything that would normally be in a garbage can. And there are raisins everywhere. Pretty sure those aren't raisins, guys. Yeah, there might be. <laughs> there might be raisins still. I mean, right? Mm. <laughs> They're everywhere. Not usually raisins. <laughs> <laughs> so he gets hit in the head with a tennis ball. He's walking through and he looks up and there is a hole in the ceiling to the second floor. Uh, that's big enough that these kids could jump through it at the same time. Yeah, they threw a tennis ball at him through the hole in the floor. Well, the ceiling slash floor. <laughs> They're already up uh, up above him. He runs a hand along a wall and the paint peels off uh, like cornflakes, which is really effective imagery. Yes, yep. The living room and dining room were really bad, and he didn't think anything could be worse until he got to the kitchen. He sees a jar of peanut butter on the floor, and it looks like someone had run up, jumped into it, and skied a one-footed track <laughs> to the stove. Uh, on the table there was a bird carcass that looked like it had an autopsy done on it and he couldn't identify the bird but it might have been a crow and the refrigerator had two food groups in it mustard and beer which is an odd combination wow i had (laughs) mustard (laughs) but also in the fridge is an even more abundant source of raisins. Yeah, but wait a second. These raisins are moving around. Yeah, that's because they're roaches. Disgusting. Literal, (laughs) just gross. And this isn't something where we could excuse it because they're living in like Arizona or something where there's almost no way to stop getting these kind of bugs in your house. No, (laughs) this is a freezing cold January in In Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Yeah. We get to meet the McNabb father, the patriarch of the family. Uh, he comes flying through the front door. He opens it up, and it's the same door that Maniac closed when he walked in because, I mean, you close your front door. <laughs> yep. It's freezing. He's not wearing anything but a sleeveless green sweater. Sweatshirt, rather. <laughs> and sleeveless it, sweatshirt. His arms, he's got tattoos all over his upper, upper arms. His hands are nearly pure black. Who knows what he's got on them. And he's just got a bag full of Burger King. Wash your hands, dude. (laughs) Right? I like this one. Uh, He takes a beer from the fridge. He drowns half of it in one swig, belches, double clutched, and belch again. Now, I had to take the time. I, I know what double clutching is in a car. Uh, this is where you push the clutch down and come into start coming into gear while you're in neutral. Okay. Okay. I was unaware 
how it was intended here, but I think that's kind of what it's saying is he drank the first one, belched, and then near the end of the belch, finished the beer off and belched again. I think that's how it means. So it's like, <laughs> like <laughs> awesome. Yeah. But the, I thought, I mean, for him to use double clutched here, it was it was kind of interesting because I'm like, I know what double clutching is when you're driving. So I had to try and put it together what exactly he meant there. I guess just imagine the sound of it, but coming from this disgusting dude's belt. <laughs> Burping, yeah. <laughs> so all of a sudden, what do we get? Uh, the kids actually do jump through the hole in the ceiling. <laughs> a couple of eight-year-olds just jumping through a hole in the ceiling. <laughs> and nobody's trying to stop them or tell them no. Uh, and they're excited for the food. There's clearly enough of these Whoppers here for everybody, but these two kids want the same Whopper. Uh, they tear it apart. It spills everywhere. <laughs> they splurt sauce. They splurts everywhere. Well, one kid falls back and hits the table. The other kid falls through the doorway to the cellar and rolls down the stairs and then bursts into <laughs> laughter. I mean, kids are almost <laughs> cartoonish in the the lack of damage they're taking from the things they're doing here. That's right. This this little kid just fell down the stairs and just describes it as hearing the laughter when after the final thud. Yep, he's fine though. He's fine because uh, he's, he's like jumping through from the second floor to the first, just <laughs> so through the hole. Dad asks here if they if they got the blocks, and John says no, and uh, he he t- the dad says, "Hey, we need more of those." And John's like, yeah, "Yeah, yeah, I'm busy." This and that, and moves along. He tosses Maniac a Whopper, and Dad. Heads right back out the front door and just yells, do your homework. It was interesting how they did this to uh, scene. McNabb, the father, swaggers, bare-armed out the front door, bellowing back, do your homework. Scene. Maniac retrieves the wet newspaper from the living room. There are no waste baskets in the house. He finds a trash can in the backyard next to a pile of cinder blocks. He dumps the soggy papers in the can, which is empty. Scene. Small turds of an unfamiliar shape appear here and there along the baseboards of the first floor. Please don't be rats, maniac praise. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just... Yeah, I like, love it. It's not, not only is Jerry Spinelli like a poet writing an, a novel, but he's also like a screenwriter right. writing a novel. Because this, this plays out like a montage yeah. of horrible, awful disgustingness that these McNabs live in. Yeah. They play football in the house, uh, but you don't have to worry about the windows getting broken because all of their windows are boarded up with plywood. Uh, (laughs) Maniac hears some rustling behind the stove, and he's freaking out because he thinks it's uh, rats, but he ends up finding out it's just a box turtle that apparently lives in this house as well. (laughs) Munching on old Whopper lettuce. Apparently, everyone drinks. Everyone drinks beer. Even the even the uh, the young kids, Russell and Piper, Kitty Cobras, yep. pop their own beer cans. Guzzle, swagger, belch, smoke, curse. Yeah, yep. they drink and smoke at eight years old. Yeah. My question, because they don't address it at all. Where do you guys even have a hypothesis on where the mother is? I mean, easily she is just gone. Yeah. Just gone. <laughs> like she either left because <laughs> all of this was so horrible or she, I no, I have no idea. It doesn't say anything about a mother. We just have She could easily a, be dead. Yeah, she could easily be dead. 
Yeah. We have no idea what happened to her. With this family the way it is, at this point uh, is when we get to finding out that um, the boys are up in their room and they're playing with toy machine guns. And everybody that walks in the door or out the door, they're pretending to shoot at them. And they, they shoot at Maniac and they kill him at least 15 times, right? And they say, this is how we're going to do it. Bam, bam, bam. And then they talk about how the guns will be real. And Maniac is like, who? And Russell says, the enemy. And Maniac says, who's that? And they stop playing for a second. And he says, who do you think? And he points the barrel of the gun towards the east end. Okay. And this is where you think about the heavy front door, how they've got it all set up. And so he... Again, here's these kids. They're calling the EastEnders an enemy. And they're preparing for an attack, an invasion Yeah, from the enemy. Now, Maniac is on the bed with the kids, which is laying on, uh, you know, a mattress here. And he remembers Hester and Lester on his lap. He remembers Grayson's hug, uh, corn muffins. And he thinks, like, who's the orphan here? And then uh, he fears, will I float? And I I think the will I float is he's laying on the mattress. And remember, he didn't like laying on a mattress because he felt like he was floating on top of mashed potatoes. Mm. Mm. I did kind of wonder about this last line in the the chapter. Fearing, will I float? I didn't get what that meant exactly. So that's what I kind of put it to is... So he wants to get the kids to go to school, which is funny because he won't go to school. Right, but I also found this interesting that he would, yeah he would make them go, but he won't go himself. But I guess at the same time, Maniac is he wants to learn, is willing to learn, and will teach himself by reading books. But these kids right. obviously aren't learning anything, and he knows they're only that, interested hey, in running away. Yeah, maybe if I can get them to go to school, they won't run away, and hopefully they'll learn something, and maybe have not a better be life what they than are. what they've got. Yeah, yeah. So he tells him he'll show him the shortcuts to Mexico on Saturday, and he buys another week of school by offering them a pizza. Uh, The boys want to get going on Saturday, and he buys another week with a pizza and also lets them know that it's volcano season down in Mexico right now. The whole place is just (laughs) lava, so we got to wait till it cools down. I thought that was cute. Yeah, yep. (laughs) Hopefully they won't cover Mexico that week in school. Right. (laughs) And they buy it for another week after that. Uh, So he's having a hard time getting the pizza to be worth them going to school for these kids. So he basically puts it to them like how what can I do? What can I give you that would buy you guys going to school? Meanwhile, the the kids, Russell and Piper, uh, have been getting a whole bunch of questions from other kids at school because they they caught wind that the famous maniac McGee was living with them. So they wanted to know they wanted to know everything about him. What's he like? What's he say? What's he do? Did he really sit on Finsterwald's front steps? Kids started showing up again with knots to give them and things from everything from sneakers and yo yo's to toys, saying, Hey, ask Maniac to undo this, will ya? And really little Kids referred to him as Mr. Maniac, which I thought was cute. So. <laughs> and what these kids are liking is attention. Uh, they weren't worried about the pizza so much at this point, but they were willing to put up with school because they're getting attention from everybody. Everybody likes the McNabb kids because they want to ask questions about Maniac McGee. Right. So 
Maniac tries the, the whole pizza for school deal again, and Russell says, no, we want something else. And they told him that he was uh, he was going to have to enter Fist- Finsterwald's backyard and stay there for 10 minutes if he wanted another week's worth of school out of them. And Maniac says, yeah, I'll do it. It's a deal. And he goes up there to Finsterwald's on the next Saturday morning, and there's a bunch of other kids. They're waiting a ways back. They don't want to even get close to Finsterwald's. And Maniac doesn't even hesitate. He just walks into the backyard and stands right in the center of it and asks who's keeping time. And he easily makes the time because there's probably not as much to this legend as everybody says there is, but it still kind of has, it has power over, over the kids in town. So maniac says, say, how about adding to the deal? I'll, I'll do something else. If you make it the next two weeks at school, I'm going to knock on the front door. Five kids Fincer Wallied on the spot. Love that line. That's a great sentence. Because I remember the imagery of of them describing what happens to those kids, and then I thought of five of them doing it, and it was hilarious. So (laughs) Well, it's just the mere mention of knocking on Finsterwald's door does this to these kids. And it's not even (laughs) them that would be doing the knocking. Yeah. And I'm I'm sure that the guy or the whoever lives there is a perfectly nice individual. And so Maniac's just like, I'll just go and talk to him. (laughs) (laughs) But the legend, he wasn't part of the legend growing up. So he it doesn't frighten him like the other kids. Right. Walks up and they're all following him, watching him, making sure and trembling with their lives. And yeah, he just goes up, knocks and door opens. He talks to who's ever there and that was it <laughs> yeah they thought yep. that all these things would happen and all nothing. these possible <laughs> dreadful scenarios and nope door closed maniac bounds down the steps comes jogging towards them grinning <laughs> and three kids <laughs> ran away because they thought maybe maniac was a ghost now <laughs> and they started inventing excuses so they can touch him just to see if he's still uh, alive and <laughs> <laughs> Just the certainty of this legend. But yep. how did they know for a fact that he was still him? They watched him devour a pack of butterscotch crimpets. <laughs> so it's got <laughs> to be Even then him. they weren't positively certain. Oh, wait, yeah, it's that's what it says. They weren't positively certain until later when they watched him devour a pack of butterscotch crimpets. So this is when he starts doing a series of heroic feats, uh, you know, in an effort to get these kids to continue to go to school. He takes 20 paces and hits a telephone pole 61 times in a row, which is a pretty odd number. Literally an odd number. (laughs) (laughs) That's got to be some kind of record, though. Right? Uh, A once a week freight train rolls through. And when it got to Elm Street, he ran on one rail and beat the train to the park. He ran faster than a train on a train track on a rail. Right. He walks through uh, a dump, barefoot. A rat-infested dump. Yes. And before he was, he said something about, I hope it's not rats. Is it because he's afraid of rats or is it something else? Because here he doesn't seem to be afraid of that whatsoever. I think the idea of li- staying somewhere where there's rats might bother him as opposed to a dump. It's outside at least, you know. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it might have been it. Yeah, it's true. There is a mysterious hole down by the creek, and you just knew you should never reach into this hole. And he stuck his hand in all the way down to the elbow and stayed there for 60 seconds. And it was still dirty when he pulled it back out, but it still had all its fingers. And this is where we get the kissed a bull legend, part of his legend. It wasn't a bull. It was actually a buffalo. He hops into the buffalo pen and kisses the baby, the small buffalo, which, you know, he didn't feel <laughs> odd about that at all because this buffalo knows him. Yep. So he suggested this feat himself. <laughs> yep. So to all the other kids, it sounded like a, ooh, what a, what a thing to do. But he had a, he had a, an existing rapport with this particular baby buffalo. Yep. And there's even a footnote that says, nobody knows why buffalo became bull in the jump rope song. History mm-hmm. often gets things wrong. <laughs> Seems kind of important. Yep. So basically the, the kids are getting a bunch of attention from this. They keep on getting boosted higher in everybody else's eyes. And it's working through March at this point. And he, Maniac, understands that they, these kids require payment in order to go to school. And he loved meeting the challenges they were making up. So it didn't really bother him to do it. And it made it so that he could get, he could get the kids to actually go to school. And one day they make a challenge that to them is the most perilous challenge of all. They challenged him to go into the East End. Now, for Maniac, this might seem a little bit perilous because he's he feels like he's not welcome there. But at the same time, he's not scared of going to the East End for the same reason that these kids think he should be scared about going into the East End. I think it's best stated in, in here. It says, it was himself he was afraid of, afraid of any trouble he might cause just by being there. Right. So it was, he, he just didn't want to cause trouble. Right, and essentially. him being who he is. That that might do it. He does this on the Day of Worms, which is described in here as that first almost warm day where it was rainy the night before. And the worms have crawled out of the dirt and are laying all over the sidewalk in the street, which I, I remember something similar to this when I was growing up, like not it being known as something, but I just remember early in the spring mm-hmm. when you'd walk outside and there'd just be worms all over the place. Yeah. The smell comes to mind. Just reading that description. Yeah. <laughs> I hate that smell, but it's a very vivid uh, scent based memory. And it, yeah, you know, he actually describes them as April's orphans. And how they have no place to burrow. And it talks about how once when Maniac was little in Hollidaysburg, he had a toy wheelbarrow and he went and he picked up a bunch of worms with a kitchen fork and put them in the wheelbarrow and then dumped them into a compost pile. Uh, So whereas other people are running around just not caring, squishing the worms or maybe even purposefully squishing the worms or cutting them up or killing them maybe – he wanted to save these worms when he was little. And this is actually where the uh, where the out-of-context paragraph from, I believe it was our first episode, comes in. And it is, uh, and so as Maniac moved through the East End, he felt the presence of not one but two populations, both, both occupying the same territory, yet each unmindful of the other. One yelping and playing and chasing and laughing, and the other lost and silent and dying by the millions. And now literally what he means is... The kids playing in the neighborhood and the worms are 
getting stopped on and killed because the kids are running around playing. And then he hears a familiar voice. And it is Mars Bars yelling, yo, fish belly. And he, he basically says, I thought you were gone. And then he comes inside Maniac's phone booth of space. Yep. Inches from his face. <laughs> Which I thought was another a folksy way of describing how close he got to him. And he had mentioned earlier, before, right before, oh, just before that, he had mentioned that uh, Mars Bars was bigger. He noticed he had been bigger. Because it's been a while since he's seen Mars Bar. But then when they met eyes, they locked eyes levelly, and Maniac thought to himself, I must be growing too. And he just says, I'm back. And Mars goes on to tell him, well, you know, I'm badder than ever. I'm getting badder every day. I'm almost afraid to wake up in the morning. He leaned in closer, because how bad I might have got overnight, (laughs) which I thought was funny. (laughs) Funny shit talk. (laughs) Just how long has it been? It's like, it's April now, right? Yeah, yep, it's April now. So, I mean, it's been since August. Yeah. Right around August August of the... He ran away and moved in with Grayson. And then, uh, we'll say like New Year's, (laughs) January or whatever, uh, he... He meets the uh, the McNabb boys, and he stayed with them from January to March or to April. Yep. So it's been like at least three three months of uh, doing these things and getting the the kids to go to school. Right, and I mean he has to at least do one a week if he's buying a whole week, but I imagine he does more than that even. So it's roughly like seven or eight months since he last uh, last saw Mars Bar. Maniac, yeah, and Maniac replies with the. Strange comeback, but he says, yeah, you're bad, Mars. He gave a sniff. His smile went a little smirky, and he said, and I'm getting so bad myself, I think I must be half black. And that makes Mars just lose his mind. He starts laughing. He can't take it. (laughs) And he has to unwind from his laughing fit, and he studies Maniac up and down, and he noticed that Maniac was studying him. And he shows, shows off his shoes to Maniac. And Maniac's like, yeah, those are some nice sneakers and something better than Grayson could have ever afforded. So at this point, Maniac, his shoes are no doubt probably dingy, but they're not the flip floppers that he had when he came running into town. And at this point, Mar- Mars Bars lets him know that he's gotten really fast and he's faster than he was before. He's got these new boss kicks. Uh, he jabbed a finger on Maniac's nose. Uh, and actually pressed and flattened the soft end of it, and he had to have had some dirt on it and tells him, you know, you, I guess you were right. At least you got a black nose. And uh, they both laughed, and everybody was laughing, and then all of a sudden Mars kind of went be- back to being scully, and he says he he's not black enough or bad enough to beat the Mars man. And they're going to race. God says, we're going to race, honky donkey. And so they get set up for a race. Honky donkey. Well, and this is where I come back to how (coughs) earlier I talked in second episode, I talked about how I didn't think Mars was necessarily so focused on race or that that was the big deal that he had with Maniac. I felt like it was just a kid that didn't like another kid who was doing these things that everybody thought he was cool for because Mars Bars wants to be the cool guy. Yeah, he wants that reputation. He wants the importance of uh, 
of being well known right or being the most being the fastest being whatever he wants to be the baddest he wants to be the baddest yeah. and because even they're going back and forth here maniac makes a joke about being possibly half black and then mars comes back and he's like you know oh you ain't black enough and this and that so you know it's not obviously he didn't take any kind of offense to that joke from maniac and so it's not really about that for him and and actually i almost feel like that makes them as they're having this conversation, they're like, okay, you know, you're, you're leveling with me. We're, we're going back and forth at each other, but there's not really much more than this jab on the soft part of his nose. There's not much more of that, like Mars wanting to necessarily beat him up. And in fact, instead he challenges him to a foot race, which seems like something like he, it's almost like he's starting to become friendly with maniac a little bit here. It does feel like it because he makes that joke about Maniac having a black nose, which I think is because like he was flattening Maniac's nose and making it like squished out mm-hmm. outwards or whatever, so so it looks like a black person's nose. <laughs> oh, see, it, I didn't. That's I figured that his finger must have been dirty or something like that. I didn't realize that. That's what. Yeah, it didn't even occur to me. Which they laughed about together, but then Mars right. turned scowly again. That's what it says when he challenges him to a race. I feel it's almost a respect thing because before he did want to beat him up, but now he wants to beat him at his own game. And McGee is known for running. So I feel like if Mars feels that if he beats McGee at his own game, that's just one more step above him. That's what I thought anyway. Yeah, you're not going to beat the legend just by beating him up or ganging up on him or doing whatever because... I think he's kind of found that that's not how you uh, you get the recognition uh, from from the peers. You gotta beat them at their own game, like you said. Right, show people that you're better in some way. So everybody gets together to watch this race, and it takes a while for them to get everything set up. No one could find any string for the finish, but luckily there were some mothers who had the windows open and were looking out. So one mother tossed some uh, pink thread out for them to tie up. Then this they is a had big to find enough deal that even the mothers are they're watching uh, are out the window. In yep. this whole thing. Everybody's yeah, interested. The little kids, the big kids, the moms. And so they, after they get the string up, they have to find some chalk. And they ended up with a stack of starting lines creeping up the street because someone finally, nobody had brought out a yardstick to make the lines straight, and someone finally did. <laughs> And then there's this make sure that this is as fair as possible. Yep. And then there's this whole argument that gets ready that happens after uh, Bump Gilliam, Mars Bar's best friend, is going to call the start. And first he says, get ready. And then somebody's like, no, you say take your mark. And then it was a huge (laughs) argument. There was almost a fist fight. And finally they came to an agreement that he would say, get ready on your mark. And then people start saying, go Mars. And, you know, he's like, no, Gilliam, Bump Gilliam's like, shut up. You can't say anything when I'm, when the starter's talking. And so then, of course, everybody starts chiming in anyways. It's smoking Mars, waste of Mars, do the honk bar man. And then <laughs> one the voice, <laughs> one voice from among them comes out and says, burn him, McGee. And it was none other than hands down. <laughs> now, do you think that Hans is genuinely a uh, a maniac McGee uh, 
devotee or fan or whatever. Absolutely. Not not just ironically kind of cheering for him because of how bad he burns uh, burns the other kids. No, well, I no, they're I mean, friends. Yeah, I feel that they're friends because they they played all summer together, and he always picked. They, you know, they Im- implied that he was always picked to be on on his team because he made forty nine touchdowns that afternoon. Right. So why wouldn't he pick him all the time? And he would definitely think that McGee is going to win this one. And and again, this is where we come back to Maniac has this perception that the East End is bad and people want him gone. They didn't want him there. But the reality of this is, is most of the people that live there liked Maniac. There were a couple of people. He's having a foot race with one person that didn't like him. There was an old man that has not had any more mention in this story because he was probably... If somebody came and took him and walked him back home, this old man probably had, you know, dementia or something and had wandered out of his house, you know, and saw something and felt like it was the 50s or something. You know, and I I, I don't feel like all these people hated him. Maniac was taking it too personally because he had not at this that point in the story, he had not really encountered resistance from anybody. He had only encountered good stuff and even when he encountered resistance he kind of slipped out of it with happenstance mars bar was the only person that really pushed anything towards him and mcnab and his gang of cobras had chased him but he never it wasn't anything too serious and his perceptions at that time were so literal that he was like this one person this one person but when that when Fishbelly Go Home showed up on the house. Truly, yes, it could have been anybody. It didn't have to be Mars Bars that did that. Okay. And when Amanda's Encyclopedia A got ripped up, it truly, it could have been anybody. So to Maniac at that point, the unknown almost made it feel like there's a lot of people that don't like him. But that isn't the case. I think hands down really likes McGee and that they're, they're friends. Enough of friends that he recognizes who he is and everything, even after months and months of him being away. And again, he is the only white kid in the East End right now. So Bump finally says, get set, go. And Maniac has trouble with how he wants to run this race. And I think it's funny because this is a race where, I mean, I would imagine it as if I was going to race against some kid, my I wouldn't be having thoughts as I'm racing other than don't fall down, don't fall down, don't fall down. <laughs> But Maniac is thinking about it as he's running. He's thinking, you know, hey, you know, how should I run this? Should I just I want to win. But if I win there, there could be consequences. You know, what's that going to mean for everybody? If I win, should I beat Mars Bar? Should I not beat Mars Bar? He's so sure that he's going to win. And he's probably right that he's trying to decide if he should let Mars win or not, you know. And as he's making these considerations, he's slowing down a little bit. And then he sees the bottoms of Mars sneakers getting ahead of him. And it just automatically, he it says it ignited his afterburners. And he heard, uh, uh, it says, you could before you could say Burnham McGee, he was ahead. And the pink thread was bobbing in his sights. But he never saw the th- himself break through the fret, uh, thread. He saw Mars Bar's face. And Mars Bars was gasping and unbelieving 
and losing and everybody went crazy. And then you hear people start saying, you see him? He turned around. He ran backwards. He did it backwards. He actually ended up beating Mars bars running backwards. And then Mars, of course, is telling Bump like, you did it wrong. I wasn't ready. This is what happened. He moved up and this and that. And he tells, he shoves Maniac and says, you bumped me. You got to fall. I refuse to concede. Uh, start. You cheated. <laughs> Count all the votes. Yeah, count all the votes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would the, those were illegal steps that you took. <laughs> it was rigged. Yeah, I was treated very unfairly. But during all this, Maniac's just thinking, "Why did I do it?" And you know, he asked himself if it wasn't enough to just win, and should he have disgraced him? Yeah, in the in the heat of the action. Something took over him when he saw that he was losing and he didn't even realize he was doing it, but that ignited his afterburners. He kicked in the high gear and I think he was confused a little bit by how how hard he was pushing that he turned around to look at uh, at Mars Bar, how he was doing and wound up crossing the finish line running backwards, which is a pretty bold move. For someone in a foot race to do. He must be freaking fast to be able to do that. I mean, you can't just running backwards is not an easy thing to do. It's doable, but not in the scenario of a foot race. I mean, I. Yeah. Even just to turn around at the at the very end and go over the finish line backwards is going to eat up a couple seconds of of time where you could have finished it a little bit quicker well and the risk that you're taking there of tripping and falling i mean because if you're if you're racing hard i mean that other person's running hard i i don't imagine this as them jogging down the street they're sprinting you know it doesn't take much my ankle to this day is still messed up because when i probably about yeah 10 years ago I was running on a trail and I did. I, I turned around backwards to talk to the person who was with me and I tripped over a thing, over a, a, a branch or a root or something, and I twisted my ankle really bad and I haven't been able to run on it since. Uh, now I just oh, have no. to walk or jog. Otherwise, it's too too much uh, impact. Don't like well, it. These are kids, though. If he had tripped and fallen, he'd be fine. You're not able to run anymore because it happened when you were already somewhat old. <laughs> yeah, I am an old man. Our bones okay. are no longer flexible. <laughs> <laughs> and our metabolisms have slowed way the fuck down. Way down. Yeah, for the first time in my life, I'm starting to get myself some some pudge. And even then, I you know, my slowing metabolism is faster than a lot of other people's metabolism still, but I can tell the difference. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you must be like a buck 20 now. Yeah, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, all he really remembers of all this is is, uh, the feeling of joyful exuberance. And he's thinking of Amen in the Bethany Church and knocking McNabb's fastballs out of sight and dancing polka with Grayson. And, you know, a lot of these things as we're, we're coming to these points of him returning to two mills uh, in this way, it's it's a lot of memories of everything that's happened so far and how it made him feel. Mm-hmm. And this is in the context of 
of winning, of doing something amazing, yeah. of uh, uh, doing a physical feat that is highly impressive. And it is it is a natural joy to him to do that, like uh, like shouting amen in church and bashing fastballs and dancing the polka with Grayson. And he wonders, maybe it was that simple. After all, who asks why otters toboggan down mud banks? Uh, but that didn't make it any less stupid or a rotten thing to do. So he's winning is a natural thing for Maniac that he's wondering he should he might want to embrace it. Right. I mean, why why be upset if you're good? And Mars Bars might be mad right now, but it's not. He didn't run as good of a race, pure and simple. But at this point, though, the hatred in Mars Bar's eyes isn't for the white kid in the East End anymore. It's specifically for Jeffrey McGee now. So people are surrounding him. They're high-fiving him. Uh, they start calling him White Lightning. Some other people challenge him to a race. And, you know, <laughs> even say, you know, who's going to turn their back on who in this one? Uh, Maniac just kept on moving. He just kept running. Uh, he didn't he didn't sprint out of the area and he wished he could go to the Beals, but he didn't want any reprisals on them. And then all of a sudden he felt two little hands and they were yelling, Maniac, Maniac. And it was Hester and Lester. And he snatched them both up and the door was opening and there was Amanda and Mrs. Beal and... They were smiling at him, and he returned for a moment. So he stayed there that night. You know, I'm sure he had a pretty good reunion with them. It was tearful and and nice. Well, it says that it was tearful and nice. I'm not sure. Well, I am sure because I'm reading it. (laughs) (laughs) So he, he did slip out at dawn, though. He left before anybody woke up. And he had gone running around, and he ended up getting spotted by Russell and Piper. And they say that, you know, they're like, holy crap, you're alive. We thought they slit your throat. Uh, We thought they strangled you. You know, all these terrible things that they thought must have happened to him because he crossed into the East End. These kids have been indoctrinated at this point to believe. And this is where the, like, these kids have racism just poured into their heads clearly by, you know, their father, their older brother. I'm sure the gang of Cobras. And I can't even imagine what real things they would actually be saying, this family would be saying, you know, because we're seeing it from this point of view. And it's also probably trying to be a little light on it since it's kids book. But in the reality of the world, I mean, a, a household like that where where people are pure racist like that, I can't imagine how terrible they're. There's what the things they're saying are. I mean, they equate them with cannibals. Yeah, they they're worried that they ate their ate him and drank his brain like a milkshake uh, shake, and they say, yeah, they eat brains, <laughs> you know, and it's just like what the fuck, you know, and they probably don't even eat meatloaf and mashed potatoes, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> even Grayson, who was innocent really about it, he just didn't have any. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he just, just to go he, off. He of. just didn't know. Yeah, so never even thought of them. You know, yeah. But this is another extreme uh, kind of thing to happen, where they're being indoctrinated with all the all the wrong ideas that of the evilness of of blackness. Right. But at the same time, their concern 
makes maniac feel good like at least they it was they were genuinely concerned for him even though he thinks it's ludicrous what they thought and then he starts hearing some thumps uh coming from a couple houses away at the McNabb's house and George uh George McNabb is uh yelling lay him down easy easy and then John's saying this easy enough and, and then thumping him the, down is the dad and there the you know there's a bunch of cursing coming in and when he walks in uh, there's dust all in the air in the living room and he sees they're bringing in the cinder blocks and placing them down the ground and George yells at Maniac and he's like, hey, and he still didn't know his name and he says, get your lily heart, hide over here, start lugging these and Maniac's just like, nah, gotta go and shut the door and head it out and He's like, wow, they're really doing it. And he had heard of them planning it, uh, stealing, buying cement trolls and level. They're building a pillbox in their living room. And now a pillbox is, to my understanding, uh, essentially like one of those gun bunkers from World War II. And I imagine they still use them to some extent today. But the the cement with little windows that you could aim a gun out of and shoot. Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a very for heavily war. fortified uh, encampment. That yes, the the little very small windows are what you have to shoot out of. They're race war preppers. They're yeah, they're race war preppers. They're they're believing that there's going to be a revolt. That the East Enders, uh, they're calling them rebels, are going to come down into the West End where all the all the poor good white people live and they're just going to start tearing the whole place apart and they're and so these guys are preparing for it and they're sitting in their house they're building a pillbox and they're saying let them come through the big old front heavy door and as soon as they do we're just going to shoot them all and maniac asks why and he and they said they're getting ready and he's like and this was a conversation that came before this day and uh Maniac's like, what do you think is going to happen? And John says, what's going to happen? And he's like, what's going to happen is one of these days they're going to revolt. And Maniac's like, who says? And they said, who cares who says? It's not like they're going to make an announcement. And then Maniac tried to picture Amanda and Hester and Lester and Bow Wow storming the barrier. <laughs> you know, and he's like, yeah, you know, I mean, just for serious, these are just nice people. Why would they do this? And he, you know, John tells him it might be the summer. Uh, he says they like to revolt in the summer, makes them itchy. They like to overrun the cities. This time we'll be ready. And I found I this part I particularly took because, you know, when it's nice in summertime and when something's happening, like say what happened last year and people can actually get outside and have a real thing that they want to stand out there and be heard for and be peaceful, which is what happened from this guy's perspective. He would have been saying what happened this summer was all riots. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. so for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, the, this is that viewpoint and this is how terribly everything else that these guys think this family thinks you know, this is where that perspective kind of comes in. Like they they have an idea of the East Enders, a wrong idea, but they're not really willing to learn whether or not they're wrong. They just know. And from there, they say uh, that Maniac tried to imagine, you know, the the blacks coming across Hector and streaming 
in with torches and chains and all this nasty stuff and doing all this. And it just it didn't make any sense to him. And John basically calls them today's Indians, you know, speaking in terms of Native Americans. But these people are terrible people. So they're using the wrong words. That's a whole nother can of worms. Yeah, a whole nother yeah, can of worms. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's not. The Native Americans didn't do that. It was no. the white people that did it to the Native Americans. But we Ugh. see this in the way that we watch cowboy mo- old cowboy movies. You know what I mean? They made it seem like that's what happened. Even though we know now and we've learned or, or hopefully you have. Hopefully you've learned some history and some real information. And you'd learn that, no, the colonists and, you know, the American government and did terrible things to the Native Americans and terrible things to uh, African-Americans. And, and the reality of those two, it's clear that Maniac isn't learning it from necessarily any of that. He just knows because he lived over on the East End and he knows they're just good people. They're just normal, good people. But these guys are living with this terrible narrative that has been pressed and pushed for for hundreds of years. I said decades in the first episode uh, relating to some of this, but no, it's hundreds of years generations of people just believing that they're all going to rise up against uh against the white man against control and civility and yeah right and this terrible fear that they have of that they like to play it off as them being courageous but it's a it's a ridiculous fear that they have and with Mm -hmm. this with this ridiculous fear comes this idea that well before they can possibly do anything we're going to preemptively do something like in this case, it's build a pillbox and in reality's case, it's make laws or make rules or do things that preemptively harm. And yeah, I mean, so they're building this, they're building this pillbox and even maniac is saying that none of the other people around here are building pillboxes. And John's like, well, you know, they might when they see we have one and if they don't, They're going to be pretty screwed, aren't they? And Maniac couldn't stay in the house any longer after all this. He realized that this is not somewhere I want to be. He finally, as he puts it, uh, there was something else in that house. And it smelled worse than the garbage and the turds. I have that line underlined too. Yeah. As do I. Yep. Well, (laughs) yeah. I mean, it just, it's a. It's a powerful line. It's a powerful line and it's true. Just an enmity that hangs in the air worse than a than an odious stench. He could stay there through cockroaches, through whoppers tossed on tables, a bird carcass, all this other stuff he could stay there through. But a box turtle. <laughs> a box turtle, yeah. The reality of how these people felt about people that he loves, he couldn't do it any longer. Just no way. He, he ran far that day, away from the town, letting the wind wash him. So, like, he just wants this gone. Must be clean. Yep. I have no amount of hand washing will will erase this stink. But he does hear something familiar that, that evening. The uh, Mrs. Pickwell whistling. So then he answered, since his first day in town, now he felt, as he had that day, that it was meant for him. The kids were excited when he showed up because here's the legend in the flesh. And they actually recognize him this time. 
the last time he was new in town. Mrs. Pickwell, of course, treats him like a member of the family. And they had a uh, down-and-out shoe salesman in sore need of sympathy and a good meal. So the Pickwells are helping out their their friends like they like they always do. Yeah, and this is the antithesis of the other people of the of the McNabs. You know these these people are so opposite. It's not even funny. They they are just very nice, kind people. They want to bring people into their home. And Maniac realizes that these people in this house, the Pickwell's house, are. Just like the Beals, you know, even looking around, he he feels he can see the Beals' brown faces around the t- dinner table and the little kids. And he's just like, you know, these are good people. And wh- this was a good one. Whoever made whoever had made of Hector Street a barrier, it was surely not these people. Mm. The Pickwells are definitely more comparable to the Beals, even though they're of different races than they are to the McNabs. Even though the Pickwells and the McNabs are both white families, it's easier to see them interchangeable with the Beals. Mm-hmm. So after this, uh, he returns to the McNabs because he's feeling good after going to the Pickwells and he goes back but because he had already done the thing that no one else would do which was go to the east end he couldn't control the the kids Russell and Piper as well as he used to he could still get him to go to class for free pizza but other than that he just he tried to do whatever he could he would he organized a marbles tournament that could only take place at the school he tried to read to them, but they didn't care. Uh, not like uh, Hester and Lester really liked when he read to them. He took them to the library, and I really like this line, and then scrapped that idea after their shenanigans left the librarian bubbling and blue-faced. <laughs> Blubbering and blue-faced. They were so ill-behaved <laughs> that the librarian didn't want them there. And as it started to get warm out when May came around, uh, he's... He didn't have any more power over him at all. Uh, yeah, it was all done. Yep. The kids started dreaming to travel again, and they started building a raft in the backyard to sail out to the ocean. I did like the the fact that uh, at one point he turned to see an ancient, rusty gas hog convertible rolling by with Russell behind the wheel and Piper jumping up and down and shrieking in the back seat. <laughs> by the time Maniac caught up, they were gone and the car was shuddering against a telephone pole. <laughs> By what eight year old boys stole a car and crashed it into a telephone pole. Fantastic. <laughs> he, he ended up having to catch him and take him back to the grocery store to return all the stuff they'd stolen, all the bubble gum and <laughs> uh he he didn't like having to do this. It was bothersome for him and he would run in the mornings and he'd read in the afternoons and he was always trying to endure the, the crazy nights at the McNabb's house. And he was wondering why he didn't just drop it and get away from him. The answer was never clear. And it's I think it's a win thing for him. Again, he's good at winning and he wants to somehow maybe he can change these people's mind about the way they they feel or what they're doing. Maybe he could save these two little kids. Yeah, he had applied himself to being a father figure to them, but uh, he was very, very quickly losing control. Yep. He didn't want to abandon them because he felt like he would be abandoning something in himself. Right. However, he he still held back. He prodded and persuaded and inspired and bribed the boys to do right. 
but he never forced them, never commanded, never shouted, because to do so would be parental, and he was not yet ready for that. And I love this line, how could he act as a father to these boys when he himself ached to be somebody's son? Mm-hmm. I like that too. I, I liked how he described the kids as uh, being identical to Hester and Lester, but they were spoiling and they were rotting from the outside in like a pair of peaches in the sun. And unless he could do something, they would rot to the pit. So like he, that's exactly what it is. He sees that the environment that these kids live in, the people that they have as role models are, are rotting them. And at some point there's going to be no Mm -hmm. turning back. The likelihood of him convincing John McNabb or George McNabb that they're wrong is almost nada. There's almost no chance. Yeah. But maybe he can do something about these kids. Yeah. Yeah. He feels that they're, they're still pliable enough that they can be kind of convinced towards a better life. But he doesn't. He wants. He wants to care for them in a way. He wants to be the the father figure without being a father figure, right? Because he, he's just trying he, to be uh, a good influence. Yeah, yeah. He does eventually lose his cool with them, though, when he comes home and finds them playing with Grayson's ball glove, and they were throwing it like a football. And that ain't happening oh they and they were punting it back and forth and he went off for about 10 minutes and he told him it was the last straw when he says jump they say how high and the kids were speechless for the rest of that night uh and in the morning when they went to school and it lasted for three days and then it kind of collapsed they were cool with the obedience and then it wasn't a game anymore and maniac lost his power yet again and they started doing stuff opposite of anything he said eventually maniac yells at him again because they're playing with their guns and they're pretending to shoot east enders and he finally just goes off again like stop and he grabs the guns away from him and then they had two more guns he says stop and they said we ain't shooting you we're shooting the rebels bam 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 and maniac's like i said stop and he grabbed these guns away from him and he didn't stop until the guns were just just demolished he uh he like he took he took the first guns away from them. They just came up with a couple other guns, and he uh, screamed stop at him, grabbed the guns, and threw them on the floor. It started stomping on them until they until they broke, and uh, that's when Russell and Piper kicked Maniac out. Yep, and you know he, he had just lost all power altogether. Well, and he went up, and got his satchel, and he was gone. And I. Pretty sure that in some way it was probably almost a relief to him. Probably. Yep. And uh, he he stayed at the park the next two nights and – oh, the next night. And then the McNabb boys tracked him down at the library and they invited him to a birthday party. Even though they kicked him out of the house, they invited him to a birthday party. Well, they still want to be uh, adjacent to, to Maniac. They don't want to give up the influence that having Maniac in the – in their lives brings them, I suppose. Can't give that up. Right. And Maniac says he'll come to the meet, uh, to the birthday party as long as he can bring somebody with him. And they tell him that that's fine. He can bring anybody he wants. And who did he bring to the party? Mars Bar. Strangely enough, he decides to bring Mars Bar with him. Yeah, because he figures if Mars Bar is the as bad as as black people get even if it's just a self-described badness that's actually 
you know, not all that bad, uh, then they, the McNabs will see that, you know, black people aren't really so bad. Right. Well, and I imagine he also figures Mars bar is tough enough that he'll be able to handle himself, you know, right. If, and I don't necessarily think that maniac being again, that he's fairly innocent. I mean, it's not like he's gotten into a bunch of fights or something. He hasn't fought anybody. I don't think he actually thinks violence is a possibility in a lot of ways. I don't think he considers it a possibility and it's not what happens, but it could have been a possibility with the way that these people are and what they've said and what they've done, but it it makes everybody Mm. just stop dead. They're all just what the hell. And here now this dude is in here and he's, I own this joint standing there. Uh, he walked right through their front door. He's right past their bars. He's he's in the house. And, and this was Maniac's thinking on it. He he figured he was thinking of the McNabb's wrongheaded notions and thinking of Mars Bar's knee-jerk reaction to anyone wearing white skin. And he was thinking, naturally, what else would you expect? Whites never go inside blacks' homes, much less inside their thoughts and feelings. And blacks are just as ignorant of whites. What white kid what white kid could hate blacks after spending five minutes in the Beals house? And what black kid could hate whites after answering Mrs. Pickwell's dinner whistle? And but you know, here they stay in their own ends of town and he had tried finding Mars Bar. Now I like how that paragraph ends. It says the less they knew about each other, the more they invented. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Like this is a separation and a hatred that comes from sheer ignorance. And not knowing who they are as people. And he once he found uh, Mars Bar, you know, it took him a second to get him convinced to come come with him. And but uh, after after not letting Mars Bar goad him into a fight and just standing there, uh, he he asked him, you know, you don't cross Hector. You don't you stay over there where it's safe. How bad would you be over there? So he like goads him like, you know, how bad do you think you are on the other side of Hector? You know, <laughs> calling his bluff. Calling his bluff. You think you're so bad. How come you never cross Hector? Yeah. How come you don't dare to cross that line? And basically he says to him, you know, hey, I'm six blocks deep in, in the East End. He's like, well, I guess that makes me better than you, you know. So now Mars Bar is like, oh, fuck that. And so, <laughs> but instead of going straight to the McNabs, Maniac does something else. He takes Mars over to the Pickwells. And every that shows them what the best the, the best, best has side. to offer. Yeah. yeah, and Mrs. Pickwell never even batted an eye at it. And the kids were like, "Oh man, Mars Bar! They know who he is, and they're they're just excited about him being there as they are about Maniac being there." I love that. Would one of the kids ask him if it was true about the the famous race between him and Maniac? Did Maniac really beat him going backward? Mars Bar just Mars Bar told him, "Yeah, he went backward, but you got the story wrong. It wasn't me he beat. It was my brother, Milky Way." Uh, classic <laughs> dad joke. Classic yep. dad joke. <laughs> That's why the grown-ups laughed, but the kids were like, "Man, I don't get it." <laughs> yep. And even the littlest non-baby Pickwell, Dolly, called him Mister Bar. <laughs> 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 and he didn't really smile, but he, he, his glare cracked a little bit. I like the line, even if Mars wasn't letting on, Maniac could tell he was pleased to learn his fame had spread to the West. <laughs> so, like, he's like, oh, yeah, okay, they know about me over here. So, that's good. Okay, I'm a little bit better than I thought. 
So the kids at this point want Marsbar to do his legendary feat, which is ability to make um, traffic stop with his shamble jive shuck uh, dip slide that he does, where he can walk across the the street and everybody will stop, including cars. Because he he just glares at the, at yep. the drivers. And Maniac warns him that it might not work on this side, but as as it works, the legend goes, uh, 23 cars, several bicycles, and a bus were stacked to a dead stop in both directions. Yeah, and this dinner at the Pickwells happens before they get to the McNabb's birthday party. Yep, yep. They went to the, they went to the Pickwells first because he wanted to show them what the best people on this side were like. Yep, so now we got Mars Bar coming into the party, looking as confident as you please. George speaks up first, and he's like, what's he doing here? And that's, you know, what an awkward situation to be in. And then Piper is just like, oh, where's my birthday present? And Maniac gives him a watch, or a compass. And uh, Piper thought it was a watch. But he told him to tell him which direction he's going, you know, the ocean, Mexico, anywhere in the world. And... He told Piper that he's keeping it to school till school's over. And until both of them go to the last day, they can't have it. And then uh, George gets out of the chair, goes into the kitchen, grabs a beer, and actually says, let me know when it leaves, which is just fucking terrible, and goes upstairs. (laughs) And I think we're all better for it that his ass is out of here now. Right. But it does cause another tense moment. It It says that... Black lightning was crackling from Mars Bar's eyes. And rightfully so. I mean, he was just treated like a non-person. And they do eventually, though, decide that they're going to play Rebels. And this is where Russell calls that whites in the pillbox and blacks outside. And this is kind of like a weird situation where now they're saying they're calling out who's going to be white and they're saying there's too many white people in here we need more blacks and they're all not me not me and i mean this that would be i can't imagine how uncomfortable that would be it's uncomfortable reading it when you're going through like holy crap man these guys just they they're oblivious to the way that they're acting and what they're saying and what they're doing mm-hmm. okay and then so so at this point uh none of the kids are willing to come out to be on the quote-unquote black team, and after a little while, as they're looking out the gunnery slots, Mars Bar is like, yeah, that's a bomb shelter. My ass. You know. Because <laughs> isn't that how uh, what Maniac told him it was? He told him it was a bomb shelter at first. That's right, yep. Yeah, they're building the bomb shelter, not a pillbox for the invasion. But then they start to form teams for playing rebels, and nobody wants to be the blacks, and... <laughs> And Mars Bar sees right through it. Yeah, this is a bomb shelter, right? They jumped out of the uh, out of, through the ceiling right behind Mars Bar, and uh, you know, rightfully he jumped, and so they're saying, "Oh, you, you see his face? Oh, check his drawers!" And at this point, Maniac had to bear hug Mars and uh, just to keep him from fighting. And now the other guys are all, "Oh, you got a problem?" Even though they're the ones who started the problem. And uh, Maniac tells him it wasn't funny, says that he could have been hurt. And McNabb's like, I'm not talking to you. They're calling Mars Bar Sonny. And, uh, you know, at this point, Maniac is like, you got to you got to back off. 
and Mars Bar tells them, you don't got to worry about me invading this piss hole. Anybody come to a block away, they faint from the smell, <laughs> which is probably fucking true. <laughs> right. But Maniac gets Mars Bar outside and they get out there and Mars Bar accuses Maniac a sucker in him, uh, telling him that, he's, that he softened him up by taking him into the pick people's. And then bringing him here. And he was like, you know, what were you trying to get me to do? Cry? And he tells him not to be, come around anymore. And he tells him he's only seen him half bad at this point. And he headed, went right back the other way, headed due east. And Maniac walked in the other direction. And Maniac thinks it was a good question. He doesn't know what he thought. He didn't know what he expected. He didn't know if maybe there'd be a miracle. Maybe he would walk in this house and... All of a sudden, the McNabs would be like, oh, you know, clearly they're, uh, you know, he's not that bad. So we're good. You know, I'm, ah, take down the pillbox and we'll stop planning this crazy gunfight that we've got planned and stop teaching our kids to be little racist. And it's not what was going to happen, you know, oh, but if obviously, it were only that simple. If it were that simple. But it's obviously like we got to remember every time whenever we're getting to this maniac is a kid himself. You know, he's like, what, 13 at this point, maybe 14. So he's hoping it can be that simple. Maybe some grand gesture can change everything. And it's not that. I mean, yeah, I, I can remember thinking when I was 12, 11, 13, you know, in that area, like I was going to do something just amazing at school or amazing somewhere. And then everybody was going to like me because I did this amazing thing. You know, and it was never going to happen. And I just sat there dreaming uh, about it. You know, instead, I did things like slid into first base and <laughs> it only made things worse Ooh. on myself. So, I mean, like, <laughs> you know, right. it's it's obviously the solution of a child here. We tend to think mm -hmm. I, I feel like as it goes through here, Maniac seems wiser than his years. And in ways he is. And in other ways. That wisdom is not wisdom at all. It's ignorance. It's not understanding why things are the way they are or why some people are acting how they are or how ingrained these these thoughts are in the McNabs, you know. Right. Cobble's Knot was another example of trying to change everything with one giant feat mm -hmm. that everybody would suddenly love him for and come together about yeah and he completed it he did it and it didn't work you know because that kind of stuff doesn't necessarily work there's all there are always going to be people that don't like you but there's a nice little moment here where he's thinking about you know what was he thinking what what did he expect a miracle and he was reflecting on it and uh kind of reflecting on how he was uh holding mars bar back from from fighting against all these all these guys in the house and he he recognized that uh, you know that there was so much fighting in this Mars Bar kid that you know, he was willing to uh, to go up against all these cobras. He was outnumbered, outweighed, but not outhearted, and he felt pride for uh, uh, for for Mars Bar and mm -hmm. uh, gained a, a lot of respect for someone who was maniac. Could feel him trembling and scared as he was holding him back, but uh, but not showing it to the to the cobras yeah not letting them know and even this uh yeah you're bad all right mars bar you're more than bad you're good and it's almost him <laughs> it's like without without actually realizing it and i don't think he takes it this way almost understanding what bad means at this point 
<laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Right. He's very close. Yeah, he's very close to understanding what bad means. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he decides that uh, it's time to go home and that he remembered that there's no home to go to. But at least at this point, he is 100% done with the McNabb house. Yeah, because now he sleeps in the park. Uh, he slept in the buffalo shed. He sleeps in the band shell benches a few times and on the pavilion. And since it was, you know, warm, it's not so bad anymore. He's getting his food from the the deer and buffalo pens and the the bakery at at the new Acme. <laughs> always had a tray of free samples sitting on the counter, and he can always go to the Pickwells for for dinner time here and there. Yeah. He hung out in the library, paid played games with the other kids. I liked here. Uh, it may have been an illusion, but it seemed that the hungrier he got, the farther Mrs. Pickwell's whistle traveled. <laughs> <laughs> that famous Pickwell whistle. Yep. So he starts. Uh, you know, obviously the way he always has, he runs. He runs in the mornings before everybody else up. I like they start referring to this time of day as the apple skin hours. Yeah, that's interesting. And he starts noticing that East End and West End, black and white, it only began when the alarm clocks rang and when everybody started to wake up. But before that, there were no barriers or divisions. There was only the people and the families and the town. And it's his town. It was was as much his town as anyone else's. But then one morning, he... He thinks he's hearing other footsteps around, but when he stops, it's just quiet. And then it starts happening a few, few more times, and he's hearing, you know, other football footfalls, and he's thinking maybe it's just his his echoing. And then he eventually sees something, but he wasn't sure. And this keeps going on for a little while longer. And then one morning he turns a corner and he ran right into another person. It was Mars Bar Thompson. They they bounced off each other and just went their separate ways. They didn't pause and they didn't say anything. And then they start having these random mergings on a daily basis. Uh, they'll meet up in alleyways. This is a very interesting uh, section yeah. where... They start. They ran into each other, and then they start paralleling each other. Right. Like, uh, they they run down the. They start running down the same routes. They don't. They don't talk to each other. They don't. Uh, uh, they don't look at each other. They're just. They're first going kind of parallel to each other, and then they start going alongside each other. Right. Not even. Not even recognizing. Well, I mean, they recognize the each each other's presence there, but they don't. Um, they don't talk about it. They don't talk to each other. They just kind of do the same thing. They match each other stride for stride, shoulder to shoulder, breath for breath. And it's kind of an unspoken merging of the two of their, of their, uh, their paths in life. Well, clearly Mars bars runs. He wanted to race. That was his big thing. He wanted to foot race cause he thought he was so fast. So he must keep himself somewhat athletic too. And basically what's happened is that we've got all these differences that they have, right? All the way up to this point, there's all these differences. Mars Bar is black, Maniac's white. Mars Bar has a house, Maniac doesn't. Mars Bar has cool sneakers, Maniac doesn't. You know, and there, there are all these different things that are different about them. But here we have mm-hmm. the, something that's the same about them. They both yeah. like running and they both like running early in the morning. And they're almost uh, they're they're a match for each other as far as this goes. They're keeping up with each other. They're 
they can run this distance with each other. And it was like for the longest time, Mars Bar had this resentment for Maniac because he wanted to be Maniac in a way. He wanted to be known for uh, his physical abilities or his ability to stop traffic and you know being a, a local legend in his own right. And then he keeps getting shown up by this kid and starts to hate him a little bit. But then they start going down a, a similar path. And they start to uh, to this point. They're they're just going, and you know, if if Mars Bar starts to go a little faster, Maniac does. If Maniac goes a little bit faster, Mars Bar goes faster. They and then they start just totally running together. I mean, now they're at some point they're just running together. One will lead one day, another will lead the other day. Uh, Mars Bar had led one day where they were going down the tracks towards the steel mill. And the next day, Maniac took them out into the country. They just they had different yep. ways of showing the different s- settings that they were able to run through. Eventually, they were both going down Main Street one day when Piper McNabb came screaming down the middle of the empty street. He was crying, and he was wet. He was slathered in black coal mud, and he was babbling and just going crazy. You know, he they couldn't understand him, so they just followed him. And that's when they got to the corner of Maine and Swede, to where the platform of the P, P&W trolley terminal hung above the sidewalk. That fateful P&W <laughs> trolley. So they follow him and Piper's pointing down the tracks and they had been jumping down uh, into the river and uh, they were or playing, no, they were they dropping were buckets. Away. They were dropping rocks they're, off the end of the yeah, river. They were playing a game where they were floating a raft under the bridge and trying to drop rocks onto it while standing on the, uh, the trolley bridge going across the river. Uh, but then... Um, Piper went down to to retrieve the raft. That's why he was all wet. He went down to the river, uh, practically drowned trying to beach it. <laughs> but uh, in the meantime, Russell was still up on the bridge, and somehow he discovered how high how high up he was, uh, and he he froze. He started uh, panicking and and was unable to uh, to move. Just terrified of being so high. And for one of the first times ever, we find something that Maniac does not want to do. Piper is screaming to have Maniac go save him. And Mars Bar stared uh, at him. And he just couldn't seem to have any want to go down there. And he turned around and he left the platform. And he ended up on the, the sidewalk below of a while. He crossed Main Street. And he just walked slowly up Swede. And Piper was screaming after him. And he was he was gone. He refused to save Russell from, uh, from the bridge. Because he didn't want to go near that spot. I don't think it was that he refused. I feel like he couldn't because of he, where he, it was. Yeah, he, he really couldn't. He couldn't bring himself... To, to go to where his even parents get close passed. to it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And so uh, I don't know if it's the next day or a while later. Uh, he just hears uh, McGee, McGee, and it woke him up. He was in the buffalo pen. And at first he thought it was the buffalo calling to him. And then he was like, oh, no, the superintendent found me. And he got up and he's trying to listen a little bit better. And he hears it again. And it's Mars Bar. It was uh, a night. Oh, it was a couple nights following the morning at the trestle. The second, yep, yep. The second, second night, night following the, the morning at the trestle. Or maniac asks him what he's doing there, and Mars Brothers says, "I've been looking for you." And he's like, "I heard you hung out here." 
And he asked where he heard that. And he says, Amanda told him. And he's like, do you really sleep here? And Maniac's like, yeah, what do you want? And he's like, where's the buffalo at? And he's, nah, they're sleeping. So he he sneaks. Uh, Mars Bar snuck out of his house. And he figured that his parents would just figure they're run- he's running when they wake up. So nobody is going to think anything. And they're both sitting there and. He asks him uh, why he didn't go after the kid. And he he basically tells, you know, Maniac doesn't answer him, but he tells him, I know you weren't scared about it. So he, he wanted to know why. And that's when Maniac told him the story of his parents' death. Well, Maniac asks if he wants to come in, and Mars Bar says, I ain't getting <laughs> eaten by no buffalo. <laughs> <laughs> ain't no buffalo gonna eat this dude. Yeah, so basically he coaxes <laughs> Maniac out there to the normal place people would hang out. and that's when maniac tells him about uh, how his parents died at that at that bridge and tell him about the the trauma he experienced because of it so mars bar recognizes recognizes why and he says i knew you wasn't scared yeah it wasn't scared it was just a trauma and he said he doesn't even remember what happened he just all of a sudden next thing he he was down on swede street but anyway mars bar tells him that he went out to to rescue russell and when he got out there, Russell just grabbed onto him, all shaking and shivering and, and hugging on him. He said he was afraid that Fishbelly was going to kiss him. <laughs> <clears throat> and even when he gets him off the bridge, uh, Russell doesn't let him go. Grabbed him like he's an octopus or something. Couldn't pry him off. So then what did he do? He, he invited them to come over to his house. Yep. To, to get his mom to pry him off of him. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, I made him leave the muddy sneakers outside. (laughs) (laughs) He wasn't about to get in trouble for that. There's little, there's little (coughs) fun little like things about the zoo here. There are, there are. There's an emu, there's Prairie Dog Town. (laughs) As they're talking, they're walking through and and Mars Bar obviously doesn't come down here very much. And so he's like checking out the things and asking Maniac what it is. So when they get back to the house, you know, she pries the kid off of off of Mars Bar and the kid immediately latches onto her and he goes to pull the kid off of her and she's like, no, let him go, let him go. Like, he's fine. And she dries, dries the wet one off and uh, she puts some clothes from Mars Bar on him, some of his old clothes on him. And she's sitting there loving it because she can't have babies anymore. And, you know, she's a mom that obviously liked having little kids apparently. And uh, they didn't want to go home. They stayed all day there with her, his mom babying him and feeding him. And she, he told her not to. And she swatted him. And uh, So, yeah, here's these McNabb kids who came from the house that they came out of, you know, all trained to uh, to be afraid of, of black people and everything. And then they get in trouble and a black guy comes and saves them. And it's like all that stuff is, it didn't even matter anymore. They latched onto them. They loved them. They got loved on, uh, got invited into their homes and everything. So they finally got to see uh, how human uh, that they could be or that they were. Right. And, and when uh, his dad finally takes them home, uh, they ask if he'll come in and play rebels with them, and they even offer to let him be <laughs> just oblivious. Yeah, uh, offer to let him be white, and I mean that speaks to the fact that these are eight-year-old kids. They don't get it. They don't understand what, I, what is. I was gonna say that they think of it as white versus black. Not white people versus black people, just white versus black. They could have said right, like red versus good, blue, black, and it would right, be yeah. the same thing to them. Yep. 
to them, it's just a color versus a different color. Not even in terms of skin color. Yep. It's just white, good, black, bad. Yep. And that it didn't even, uh, didn't even occur to them that it was related to skin color, really. Right. That's why they offered him to be part of the white team, because to <laughs> them, it's just team the white team, not white people, just team white. So. And clearly, this good guys. This would get worse as they get older, and they would begin to associate it the wrong way. You know, if they, which they will continue to live in that house, and they're still going to probably learn that from their father and their their older brother and all those other kids, but. The fact is, is that at the end of the day, these are eight-year-old kids, and the it hasn't been fully taught to them yet why white and black. They're just playing a game, and mm-hmm. they're so oblivious to it that they are literally asking a black kid if he wants to come in and be a white to in the in the <laughs> fight. Yeah, I mean, it's just yeah. And so Mars Bar tells Maniac he smells like a buffalo, and. Uh, he asks him, you know, he says, hey, my mother wants to ask you something, too. And Maniac's like, your mother? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I told her about her and told her about you. And she'd already heard about you. And she wants to know if if he can come to their, if he'll come to their house. And Maniac is kind of blown away. The, the crickets are making noise and not them. And he says he can't. And Mars Bar is like, why? My house not good enough? And Maniac's like, I didn't say I didn't want to. I just can't, you know. Things happen, and, is what he says. Yep. And Mars Bar's like, hey, listen, no one's saying come live with us. All we're saying is come and visit, you know. You're welcome to come. You don't have to, but if you want to, you can. It's not a big thing. And Maniac is just like, you know, oh, he's looking off into the sky and he's trying to avoid this. I love this line. If there were answers, they were as far away as the constellations. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't even really answer Mars Bar. He just says, I got to go. Yep. And he hops over the fence. And he goes and back. Gone. So he wakes up to the, the buffalo grabbing a hold of his ear and lifting him up. And he thinks Mars Bar was right. They do <laughs> eat people. <laughs> and not only that, it started speaking to him. <laughs> But it sure sounded realizes Yeah, it sure sounded a lot like Amanda Beale, and its teeth sure felt like her fingers wrenching on his ear. <laughs> There's a great way of writing that exchange yep. that uh, <laughs> how he woke up. Because that's like you wake up and you're so groggy that you don't you're not thinking right. Yep. You may not even know where you are, but <laughs> you feel like, oh my god, the buffalo is eating me. Yep. So then she she ends up smacking him in the head. He wishes she'd grab his ear. And she she says, you know, I haven't said that word all year. And she's talking about ain't. And she and she's like making me so yeah, she mad. She speaks to him saying, ain't you nice? Yep. Ain't you nice? Yep. <laughs> oh, there you go. Making me say ain't. Like she wants to be, she wants to speak English properly. Yep. Yep. <laughs> but <laughs> then he thought maybe he'd have a better, better chance sleeping in the emu pen. And uh, he asks her, wants to ask her a question. And so he's like, you know, other than making you say ain't, what is it I'm saying sorry for? And she's mad and she's like, you're sorry for all kinds of things. You're sorry because you didn't accept Snickers' invitation to his house. You're sorry because you came throwing a ball up against my bedroom window and waking me up. Or he did. Mars bars did. Waking me up and telling me. Uh, I had to get up and out of my bed and sneak out of my house in the middle of the night and come out here and do something about all this. This is why you are sorry, boy. 
<laughs> and Maniac surprised by he, the name he, Snickers. He realizes that she said Snickers. Yes, Snickers. <laughs> like, Snickers? And this is where I want to give you guys a fun fact. Uh, so Mars bars are no longer made. They're, they're not able to be purchased in the United States. But the closest thing to a Mars bar are Snickers Almond. Hmm. Okay. So I just thought that was funny that the Mars bar, and then he got his name changed to Snickers, Snickers and the Snickers is the closest thing to a Mars bar (laughs) now. Yo. Because Amanda says that she's changing his name to Snickers because how bad can you act if everybody's calling you Snickers, Snickers which she says loud enough for him to hear from the other side of the fence. <laughs> he tells her to shut up because he's over there. Shut up, girl. <laughs> A voice came rasping from the fence. Shut up, girl. <laughs> Maniac laughed and uh, he realized it's been a long time since he laughed this hard. And then Amanda just tells him, let's go. And he's like, where? And she says, home. And he's like, uh, she's like, mine, yours, ours. Come on. I'm sleepy. And like, she's like, this this is over. You're done with this self-pitying. I'm going to live out free in the world, blah, blah, blah. You're coming home. You live at our house. Let's go. Yep. She's smacking him to his senses. Yep. She's done with it. He says he can't, and the second that he lays back down, he's standing up again because he's got she's got him by the ear again. <laughs> <laughs> she is not taking nope. no for an answer. <laughs> There's that East End woman in her prime. Yep, yep. <laughs> she's not in her again. prime yet, but she's getting there. <laughs> she's getting oh, there. Man. She's a prime enough. Yep, and she's she's going at him. She kicks him. She's like, "You don't have a choice. I'm not asking. I'm telling." <laughs> she tells him, "You're coming <laughs> home with me. You're gonna sleep in my room, which is gonna be your room. And I don't care if you sleep on the floor or the windowsill, but you're gonna sleep there and not here." <laughs> and like just the whole thing. And the baby, uh, she tells him that you know, once in a while, he's gonna sleep over at Snickers' house if he ever asks him to. And she's, this is not your home. Now move. And she gets him back on his feet again. And uh, Mars Bar is applauding and whistling from the fence now. <laughs> yeah, tell him. Yep. And they get to the fence and she just looks at him and boosts me over. <laughs> like, so he does, you know, and now he's, he's, he's got to listen now. She's done with this shit. <laughs> she's had enough. <laughs> And so the three of them go back to the East End, yep. Amanda grumbling all the way. <laughs> and we come to the end of it, where Maniac, as it says, he find, he knew that finally, truly, at long last, someone was calling him home. So uh, it's one of satisfying. those... You know what? It's funny. You come to the end of a book a lot of times, and I... So many books you come to the end of and you read those last few words and it's not satisfying and you wish it could be this or wish it could be that. And this is one of those rare gems to me where this book ends with a lot of things are neatly tied up. You still got some problems, you know, you still got the Mm -hmm. McNabs being the way they are and everything, but Maniac's got a home. Uh, the fight with Mars Bar is over. In fact, him and Mars Bar are friends at this point now, you know? Yeah. So mm-hmm. where it started with a hatred, it's become a friendship. And I don't, I just don't think that happens very often. And it ends with a fairly short sentence, but that short sentence just ties, ties it up. It's not really a short sentence. It's got three commas in it. <laughs> <laughs> Again, right. he's well, not afraid yeah. of long sentences. Everything I said was bullshit. 
<laughs> Way to go, Harold. You ruined it. You ruined the whole thing. All three parts. <laughs> All for three that parts. one thing. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> but yeah, he is it's, he's basically going back uh he's going back to the Beals house, which they are definitely set on that being his home and it's not really changed from earlier where they wanted him to be in the home before and they never wanted him to leave in the first place but uh maniac's been through a few a few more things since he he left that first time and uh i guess he's probably ready uh to go back and call that his home now well maybe he wasn't so ready as kind of convinced <laughs> Right, yeah. But he's kind of accepting it now. It's kind of cuz it's kind of the same tactics from Amanda where she's kind of browbeating him into accepting that this is his home where he is loved, but I guess uh he's seeing it now. There's a there's a few things that are different now, mostly like Mars Bar is going to be his friend and not uh not trying to kick him out of the East End anymore. Right, and I think that that really will make a huge difference for him, though. I, he feels like there's going to be all this opposition there, but realistically, the biggest opposition was Mars Bar. He was the consistent opposition to him leaving, mm-hmm. there, living there. Yeah. And to him, the problem was always himself, mm-hmm. that he was the lightning rod for uh, all these problems that were, were going to happen to wherever he wound up. The trouble just follows him. Him being alive, his parents were killed by a trolley. Him living at his aunt and uncle's house just increased the amount of hatred they had for each other. Uh, yeah, the the graffiti getting on the Beale's house and the Encyclopedia A getting torn up was because he was there. You know, Grayson, what, Grayson died because he was living in the band shell with him and it was too cold, maybe, you know? Um <laughs> Yeah, the pillbox actually got built when he was living at the McNabs, even though they had been not building it and procrastinating for a long time. Uh, You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's all a lot of coincidence, but in the mind of a kid and and this one in particular, seeing all this stuff happen around him, yeah, maybe he feels like he is the lightning rod that makes these things happen. He's, He's the bad luck charm. And he was not meant to have a home somehow. Yep. In any case, Maniac McGee is a great book, and I personally would recommend this book to anybody. I mean, a young kid, uh, adults, and it's funny because it's written for kids, but I, I would absolutely recommend this to any adult. It's a good book. It kind of gives you a, a little bit of nostalgia of, you know, it's obviously the 80s or 70s, but I mean, like, if you're a 90s kid, we were the tail end of all this type of life. We were the kids who were still allowed to run around free at six, seven, eight years old, you know, and we were the latchkey kids. Riding around in tricycle gangs. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Five years old. You know, I mean, my brother. Big wheel gangs. My brother and I used to ride all over Bay City, all over the city we grew up in. On And at first it was we had two bikes. And then one time we went down to fill our bike tires with air and my brother blew the back tire on his bike and my mom couldn't buy us a new tube right away. So for like 
months because we never really reminded her we rode the same bike. I would pedal the bike and I would stand up and pedal and my brother would sit on the seat. And I mean, we went all over town (laughs) and I was like nine and he was seven or eight and Mm -hmm. six. And we were just gone all day long. We used to take this skateboard and we'd try riding it down ever increasing inclines. We called ourselves stunt poopers. I mean, like... (laughs) I think that this stuff happens to some extent today, but I guarantee it doesn't happen to the extent that it did for us. Because now, you know, you let your kids go play out in the backyard and one of the same people who would sit there and say, you don't let your you don't let your kids go outside. When I was a kid, they're going to call CPS on you for letting your kid play on the backyard without you being out there watching them. So, I mean, this brings you back with some nostalgia to that time, this time that is lost in a way and mm-hmm. i don't know i just really loved i loved this book when i was a kid i remember loving it when i was a kid and reading it again as an adult i loved it again i would recommend this book to anybody i would recommend it and i this is the first time i read it i never read it as a kid but it was very well written it kept me engaged i didn't get bored at any part the imagery is outstanding yeah, it's and and it does it tackles very difficult issues but in a very uh way that's able to be absorbed easily even for younger children. Is what I'm trying to get at. So like you're going to yeah. be an adult and you'll you'll take in a lot more probably than a kid would, but I, I can think see so, this being great for that that age group, the third, you know, third, fourth, fifth grade. That is a perfect time to have them read this book. Yeah. As far as that goes, um, I definitely recommend it as well. Uh, it's uh, it spoke to me uh, quite a lot as as an adult. Uh, read, having read it in fourth grade, uh, obviously it didn't stick with me consciously, I would, I would say. I think I... Um, I respected the book a lot more for its uh, its descriptions of you know how kids are playing with each other and just the the wonderful things that this legendary kid could do and and did do and that's kind of what I consciously took away from it having read it as a as a young kid with uh, some of the themes not really uh, well they they went over my head to the extent that I didn't really remember too much what the book is about. But I would be willing to believe that it definitely sowed some seeds of, um, I mean, I would probably, I would hope like racial tolerance or like a way of seeing a race where, you know, you, you see people before you see colors and you still see colors and you recognize that there's, that there's colors, but you don't associate it with good or bad right off the bat. You don't associate th- the color with race. Right. You don't associate the color of someone's skin like with a race or with goodness or badness. Right. I would I would think I would I think maybe perhaps having read this at a young age, that instilled something in me because I like to think that I kind of see see it that way that the maniac does. Or like he like he the way he wants to be, to believe or wants it to be so or just assumes that it's so that you know people are people. When I first started, uh, when we first talked about doing this whole thing, uh, I had grabbed Maniac McGee right away, and I believe I even said to Josh early on, "I'm like, we should do Maniac McGee like right off the bat, right?" 
and I yes, opened it. Yep. And I opened it up and I read, I read probably about five or six pages in because it's that quick that you discover that this book is going to have some social issues in it that we need to talk about. And I was like, we're not ready for Maniac McGee. Like, holy shit. <laughs> I don't think we should, I don't think we should start yeah. with this book. Let's not start with this. <laughs> and I would say that based on the fact that I know I read this book multiple times as a kid, and it's funny because like you're saying, I didn't even remember that one of the biggest battles in the book, one of the biggest themes in the book is this racial division in the book. Okay. I remember right. the story about this kid, right? And as you're saying, I think that because I read it, I know quite a few times when I was a kid, I think that, uh, I think the same way what you're saying, like I've always forever been on the side of of people telling me, well, this is how so and so or these people are that people, those people are. And I've always been as far as I back as I can remember, been like, no, people are people. They're not like that. And I, I do wonder myself if this book was a catalyst for that mode of thinking about things. So mm-hmm. you know, like you can't treat people as a monolith that they all act and think the same way just because of one physical characteristic. It's just not realistic. It's not true. Right. <laughs> However, at the same time, society, like cultural uh, things that carry over from the ugliness in 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 our in our culture uh, would would have it seen that way. But I think this was a very important uh, a stepping stone, I would say. It's an important lesson. Going against that, yeah. Yeah, it's an important lesson that, like you're saying, and, I, and with how I feel about it, maybe not consciously at the time when I read it, it was a story, it had this cool stuff in it, but so- somewhere subconsciously it feels like it must have had some kind of impact. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. I think if it's not on curriculum, it should be on curriculum. This is the type of stuff people need to read right now. I think as far as kids go, um, I think that it's a good idea. You can't ignore those type of issues. You ignore those issues. Mm -hmm. They fester. You ignore those issues. You get McNabb kids, you know, these kids that don't even realize why they hate or don't like what they don't like. So Mm -hmm. they don't even have a concrete uh, example of what they, they don't like. Like they see an actual black person and it doesn't register them that this is what they're defending their house against. Yeah. They're (laughs) hugging, they're hugging on the mom. They spend the whole day while she babies them. Yeah. They don't even, they don't even know what it is that they don't like or who it is they're supposed to hate. Yeah. They didn't have a visual representation in all of this indoctrination against quote unquote black people. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) It's craziness. I feel like after this, after this incident, those kids go to that that house quite often. They go to Mars's house just to see the mom because they don't have a mom. So I could see Mars's mom becoming like a mom to them. Oh yeah, mm. which would be great. That might that would be the miracle that Maniac was hoping for. Maybe yeah. yeah. Maybe they run away to the East End instead of Mexico because <laughs> they do discuss how. Sometimes the girl is from the west side and sometimes the girl and the other girl is from the east side and they're playing together. And that's that's what Maniac wanted was to stop the segregation and have just everyone get along. Yeah, like, hey, you guys are all everybody here is the same. I don't understand what the problem is. You know, yeah. Yep. There's the people who just want to play together and the people who just want to stay away from each other. Yep. 
So that was Maniac McGee, you guys. <laughs> yeah, it took us three episodes. Three episodes uh, and uh, a very long third parter, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> what, you- yeah, we had like about one and a half hours, the first couple of parts, and now we're here sitting here. Which well, it, it shortens down in the editing, but right now it's at about 240. Oh, you know, I mean, there's no way to get around it, though. There's no way to get around it. The, to me, mm-hmm. the it deserves every minute that we gave it. I agree with I agree. If copyright didn't disallow it, we would read <laughs> the book. Yeah, to just you. read it in its entirety. <laughs> <laughs> Have it be, let's see, how many chapters are in it? 46. A 46 part <laughs> podcast <Yeah>. episode. <laughs> so I think we actually went pretty fast. Well, you guys, I only I only have 12, 12 and a half more hours of recording space on my on my Oh, snap. (laughs) We got to bring this to a close. (laughs) We do. (laughs) So, yeah. Let's close with uh, another reminder that uh, we have some butterscotch crimpets to give away to two lucky winners. Just uh, interact with us on social media. Use the word crimpets in whatever you you say, and you'll be entered to win a box of butterscotch crimpets. And let's remind the folks where they can go to interact with us. That's at Reliterated on Twitter. R slash Reliterated on the, on the Reddit. We're also on Instagram at Reliterated. And you can get a hold of us at Reliterated at gmail.com. I've toyed with making a Facebook page for us, so that might happen eventually, but we aren't, we're not on Facebook quite yet i'm the only one of the three of us that's still actually active on <laughs> facebook so although that is how i i've most effectively gotten the word out about the podcast so i know a lot of you listeners are facebook friends of mine so that might uh that might get me to make something for the for the podcast on on facebook i haven't interacted with people on facebook in such a long time at this point that when i post something i'm pretty sure either no one sees it or the last few things i said uh during our heated (laughs) political (laughs) season uh have caused them to ignore me so (laughs) yeah things got rough oh rough they got I haven't logged into my Facebook page in over three years, so it exists, but... <laughs> it does still exist. It's there. I still tag you from time to time. But yep. anyway... Anyways. So... Thanks for listening to Reliterated, brought to you by the Chocolate Milk Friends. If you enjoyed our show, please share it with your friends. Uh, subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Podbean, Google Podcasts, or any podcatcher app that pulls from these sources. And we'd really appreciate your reviews and ratings uh, wherever you listen to us because it helps us grow our audience. What are we reading next time, guys? Let's do an eight-parter. <laughs> <laughs> an eight-parter. <laughs> no, we're, we're going to go with, some, with something a little bit lighter fare. It's going to be Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and this is a apparently 100-page book, so we should be able to get it out in maybe only seven parts, not eight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's, let's be reasonable Yeah, I'm pretty here. sure that we're going to be able to <laughs> knock that one out in a our episode, but <laughs> I'm not making any promises because we sure seem so. to like talking. Yeah. <laughs> We sure do like to talk. 
So anyways, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is our next book, and you sh- you could read along with us if you so chose, so you know exactly what we'll be talking about when we talk about it on this podcast we do. Sounds natural. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we talk good, especially me. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs>